0: Well, I know you're all excited to be here today because I'm gonna talk about the election. So I've decided just to go ahead and make it easy for you. I want you to get out something to write this down with. Maybe you wanna tweet this or post it on Facebook because I'm about to tell you exactly how you're supposed to vote. See how easy that was? We fixed it. Obviously, I'm not gonna do that, and I'm joking. It's interesting that some churches do. But I wanna reassure you that things will not get out of hand. Our elders have asked Josh to install a mute button. And so if I cross the line or start interrupting myself, he will just mute me. Don't you dare. You know, I often wonder what the original 12 disciples would have viewed, how they would have viewed what we face today. Um, I believe God gives each of us in our generation grace for what we face. I'm getting just a little feedback. Uh, And, thank you. And I know that God has given us grace for our day. But I'm interested, I wonder what they would say if they were here. Um, because they had differences too. They had political differences. For example, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot were two of the original disciples in Jesus's bunch. And they were on opposite ends of the most Critical and important political issue of their day. And that issue was the Roman occupation of Israel. It was the issue that overshadowed everything in Jewish life. It was the central issue of their day. Roman soldiers were stationed throughout Israel to oppress the locals, uphold Roman law, and do it oppressively, And to collect taxes for the Roman emperor. And it was a burdensome thing to be under the rule of Rome. And this was a central issue going on in the day that Jesus walked uh, there in the Palestinian area. These Romans would do these things by employing Jews to collect the taxes. Uh, That way they took the heat... And they could also abuse their own people. And as you can imagine, these tax collectors were hated. They were seen as traitors, working for the enemy, and they were not liked. So what kind of political statement did Jesus make about this practice? Well, he went and called Matthew the tax collector to come join him as one of his twelve. On the other side of the political spectrum was a party called the Zealots and they were like a a militant guerrilla group. They were zealous to overthrow the Roman rule. They fiercely opposed Roman occupation and they often resorted to ambushing and assassinating Roman soldiers when they can get them off just by ones or twos. They were the resistance. They were militant. They would take back by force that which had been taken from them. So what kind of political statement did Jesus make about this political party? Well, he went and called one of them, Simon the Zealot, to be one of his 12 disciples. Now, do you get this picture Of the 12 original disciples, at least two of them were political enemies. And now, they're following Jesus together. Walking and talking and living and camping out together. 24-7, three and a half years together. Can you imagine the conversations around the campfire at night? And they weren't the only two with strong political views. All the disciples pressed Jesus on multiple occasions to engage the political scene to offer political solutions. They wanted Jesus to capitalize on his popularity, ride the discontent in the public into public office, And to establish a new Jewish government. That's what they thought it meant to follow Jesus. Their concept of following Jesus meant the recommissioning of a new Jewish king that would get rid of Rome. That's what they thought. But Jesus refused to take the bait. And let's remember that it was a type of political power that Satan offered to Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. Jesus refused to take the bait. Jesus was having none of it. He wasn't a political leader and he would not fit into a political system. You might remember there was a time in the Jewish history When the people of Israel demanded of God that they be given an earthly king, and they got what they asked for. And now, in the days of Jesus, many are clamoring for a king once again. But Jesus wasn't going to give them what they wanted, how they wanted it. His answer was not what they were asking. He refused on every occasion to answer politically what he knew could only be answered eternally. He said to another political leader, Pilate, the Roman governor, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But... My kingdom is not from the world. Now, listen, when you have to say something twice, it probably means that it wasn't understood the first time or the first hundred times he had said it. It still wasn't registering. My kingdom is not of this world. He is a king, he has a kingdom, but his kingdom is not of. Or from the world. Can anyone say amen? So here we are 2,000 years later. And let's just go ahead and point out the elephant. And the donkey in the room. We don't all agree on how we should vote. Awkward. Somebody's sitting close by. Not next to you because we separate you. We did that not for COVID, but so you wouldn't hit each other during this message. (laughs) Somebody sitting in this room is not going to see it the way you do or vote the way you do. And the bigger question may not be why, but how are you going to respond to them? We have to ask ourselves, what does this all mean and how must we relate to each other? Do we see those who don't agree with us as being ill-informed, misguided, unfaithful, not true believers? Have we created a litmus test for faithfulness? Now, I realize our country is facing a lot of serious problems. It is a very critical time in history, for our nation, for the world. And we all have strongly held views. Most of us do. My wife doesn't really like politics, so she only votes because I make her. I just uncovered you, I'm sorry. But honestly, there's a lot of people that have checked out because it has become so violent. I certainly have my views on things like religious liberty and immigration. I cannot handle the way that we have treated people on the border. I think it's an abomination. Every bit as much as other things that we think are an abomination like abortion. I can't stand the racial injustice that's happening. I can't stand the fact that our police officers are not being supported. I know there's some corrupt ones in the bunch. I can't stand... The fact that we treat prisoners the way we do, and sometimes there's injustice all in the way we sentence them. I can't stand the fact that we are ruining the environment and we're not seemingly doing much about it, but then we can't agree what we should do about it. And I really don't like the character of many of our leaders. I don't know what we're going to do in regards to foreign policy, and I don't know what we're gonna do in regards to education, Did I mention religious liberty? That seems to be a really hot topic button. Probably the biggest issue that many of us wrestle with or are pretty adamant about, and that's the issue of abortion. It has been for me, it's been very central to me in the way I have voted historically. But I have to admit to you that my voting over the years hasn't changed the abortion issue much. Since the inception of Roe in 1973, which is 47 years ago, Republican pro-life presidents have appointed 11, this week it'll be 12, justices to the Supreme Court. In that same time period, pro-choice Democratic presidents have only appointed four. So what that means is that of the 49, or 49 of the last 50 years, Republican-appointed justices have held the majority on the Supreme Court, and yet Roe is still the law. If our goal is to save lives by reducing the number of abortions, I don't know that putting all of our energy and resources into overturning Roe is being very effective. I think people's hearts are going to have to change. Before the law ever will be. Amen. William Cavanaugh, the professor of Catholic studies at DePaul University said this. The one strategy for reducing abortions that has been proven to work. Runs through love. Not power. Support for women who may not feel able to carry a pregnancy to term. Now I... I really believe our responsibility as Christians has first got to be praying the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. And then actively, I mean actively, loving people who are so desperately affected by this issue. We have families in our church who have fostered. We have people who have loved uh, the single mother who can't take care of her own medical needs and so they have practically stepped in and helped this woman have the child but if we want to rant against something politically and not do something practically we are hypocrites and Pharisees I'm grateful for those that actually put their faith into action and don't yell from the mountaintops as to what should change and what needs to happen I think that many Christians think their only responsibility is to vote and let those they vote in do the heavy lifting. We still want a king to do for us what what, what we ourselves should be doing as unto the Lord. Give us a king. That way we're not responsible. He will be. Or she will be. That would be a queen, I guess. And one... Other thing that I'm concerned about with respect to all of these very difficult issues is that Christians seem to only wake up during election time. I also wish it didn't take a contentious election for us to passionately seek God's will and what He desires of us. I honestly wonder why we don't hear this much noise and chatter from the larger Christian community about the more central elements of God's kingdom. Christian media talks about the election like it's the only thing that matters. Why do we get so riled up about who evangelicals vote for but passively stay silent about God's purpose and plan the other three years and six months of a presidential term? It's like we have this pinnacle That's what we're to do. Now that we voted, we can sit back and relax and let them do what we wanted them to do in the first place. It seems like the larger evangelical community is only making our nation, is only interested in making our nation more Christian, but not very interested in sharing the gospel that introduces people to Christ. Much of evangelical Christianity is too fixated on Christianizing our nation, but not very interested in having Christ permeate their own heart. And if we think we can vote in what Jesus intends for us to live out, we are sadly mistaken. So my hope is that when this election is over, and it will be, thank the Lord, that we will understand that our work as Christians has just begun. We have a responsibility not to vote. That's our civic duty. We have a responsibility to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. And that is what God has called us to do. He didn't call us to make a Christian nation. He called us to make disciples of all nations. And so we must keep in perspective what we're doing. Now here's my final point of my message today. It must be a priority for us on how we love one another. That has got to be central to the way we live our lives, how we are gracious and kind to one another, regardless of how people vote or how they line up politically. I believe these issues are something we should be praying about, most certainly. I, I've had some wonderful conversations this week and some not so good ones, but from our people in our church, I've had wonderful conversations with Sam Chen and, and Cindy and Abby I've had good conversations with Curtis. I've really appreciated for the vast majority of our people how we are trying to make the main thing the plain thing. <laughs> how we're trying to keep what he's called us to do as central and then what we're, we're needing to do responsibly and civically Keeping that submitted to him. And and Abby's made a a post on Facebook that's gotten a lot of feedback. And her basic premise is, the Lord shared with her, told her, that she needed to pray before she voted. And she said to me, it's funny how I didn't think that would be controversial. (laughs) But apparently it is. Because someone said to her, of course you need to pray, and then you need to vote for blank, We pray like we already know the answer. And we don't take the time to listen. I want to ask you, if you're just adamantly for somebody, what if God said to you to vote for the other person? Could you, could you go there? I mean, you know the voice of the Lord. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. That can't be the Lord. I know what righteousness looks like. You know, when it's our guy in the office, we're more than happy to overlook their shortcomings and say, well, God can use imperfect people. But the moment God asks us to put a different imperfect person in the office, we think, well, that's a mistake. God's sovereign over here, but he must not be, that's our problem, not God's. He's either sovereign all the time or he's not sovereign at all. Obedience is better than sacrifice. I, Abby's kind of gotten to, I, I did too. We both kind of got into some heated, well, actually they were pretty civil mostly, but I just think it's fascinating that we are controversial because we're gonna pray about who we vote. I, I think what she was saying is that our praying actually changes us more than it changes the circumstances. And that's what needs to happen our hearts need to be changed. It must be a priority for us to love one another, be gracious and kind to one another. I I can't afford to vilify or condemn brothers and sisters in Christ for seeing things differently than I do. If I choose to pick apart their weakest arguments and focus on my best points then I probably need to question my faithfulness to Christ's command more than theirs. Here's what I feel the Lord is saying to me out of Romans 14. Why, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Interesting that says any longer. That means they had been passing judgment on each other but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul is addressing the church in Rome, which has had converts from both the Gentile community and the Jewish communities. And they have now become believers and they're walking in faith. This was a big issue in the early church. Did they have to, did Gentile believers now have to adhere to all the Mosaic laws? And it was an ongoing thing. And Paul and Peter, man, they went at it for a while. And and it was a council issue. And there was a lot of discussion about this. And can you be a believer if you don't do the Moses law? Talk about a litmus test. And both sides were being intolerant of each other, accusing the other side of being unfaithful to their call. Because the Jewish believers were still adhering to the dietary restrictions of the old covenant. And the Gentiles had liberty not to do that. And they were in Christ. They they were as much believers as the Jewish ones were. Now, we don't really have arguments about diet anymore. We probably should. (laughs) I know the way I eat, I need to argue that. But uh, those are not our arguments today, but we have arguments. We have issues. What I want us to see is that the answer Paul offers to this church in Rome for how they should handle their division, it applies to us and how we should handle ours. So as we read a few more verses from Romans 14, I want us to read them in light of how we ourselves are divided. And then when it reads what you eat... We're going to replace it with how you vote or how you expect others to vote. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by how you want them to vote, I know it's what you eat. Work with me here, okay? You are no longer walking in love. But how you vote... By how you vote, do not destroy the one whom Christ died, for whom Christ died. Verse 17 For the kingdom of God is not a matter of voting, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. For then. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul admonishes us to build up the faith of others rather than tear it down. Now, I want to ask, how's the church doing in that area today? I have believers and leaders that I love dearly and respect who are vastly Opposed to each other when it comes to political issues today. And I have tried to listen to both. And for those that see certain things around platforms and principles such as abortion as the primary reason for why they vote, I try to love them and respect them and hear them, and I understand it. But I also have a lot of believers and Christians and, and, and leaders that, that are on a different little bit of different bent they see as greater issue than even that. And and you can see the abortion issue is not as clear cut as we think. In fact, I would encourage you, if you want to hear something very interesting, uh, Phil Fisher, who is the creator of VeggieTales, has a podcast called Holy Posts. And he and his partner have actually put out a video on abortion helping us see that maybe the tactics we've been going for has not been so effective for us. But regardless, there are others who see the bigger issue of character and other sin that is happening among our leadership and in our nation as being a detriment to the witness of Christ. And I try to hear them and respect them and listen to them and I understand where they are. I'm not gonna tell you where I am because that's not the issue. The issue is, can we not love one another Why must we tear each other down when I believe both communities are dearly trying to hear God and obey Him, praying before they vote like Abby told us we ought to? Paul admonishes us to build up. Being right has its drawbacks. Especially when you assume everyone must accept the way you think and do it the way you do. The original 12 had to learn this. They had to adjust towards each other based on what Jesus told them on the night he was betrayed, and he said it this way. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you vote the way I want you to. No, he didn't say that. If you love one another. These disciples had their differences, but what set them apart was their love for Jesus and their love for one another, and it showed up in how they preferred one another, and it showed up in how they supported and served and wrestled with one another, and it showed up in how they were willingly uh, picking up their own crosses and denying themselves and following Jesus. And they were forsaking their political views and their dreams and their families and their professions and even their lives. We may honestly believe that the only way to save our nation is to vote for our preferred candidate and to enact our platform. But I suggest to you that the only salvation that can be had comes from the Savior. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. Chuck Colson said this before he died. The kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. Americans may elect the leader of the free world, but the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, will still rule the universe. And my friend David uh, David Cassidy, a pastor in Nashville, said, Thy kingdom come won't find its culmination in this or any other election cycle. Don't be deceived or dismayed. The yard signs will soon be gone. What we do here and now that is eternal will remain. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, befriend, pray, serve, rejoice in the Lord. Always and again, I say rejoice. May the world know that we are his disciples, not by how we vote but by how we love, amen.
1: To those who have been given a faith as valuable as yours in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may you know more and more of grace and peace as your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord grows deeper. He has, by his own action, given us everything that is necessary for living a truly good life, in allowing us to know the one who has called us to him through his own glorious goodness. It is through him that God's greatest and most precious promises have been available to men, making it possible for you to escape the inevitable disintegration that this world produces while you share in God's essential nature. For this very reason, you must do your utmost from your side and see that your faith carries with it real goodness of life. Your goodness must be accompanied by knowledge, self-control, the ability to endure, and your endurance must always be accompanied by devotion to God that in turn must have in it the quality of brotherliness. And your brotherliness must lead to Christian love. If you have these qualities existing and growing in you, then it means that knowing our Lord Jesus Christ has not made your life complacent or unproductive. The man whose life fails to exhibit these qualities is short-sighted he can no longer see the reason he was cleansed from sin. Set your minds then on endorsing by your conduct the fact that God has called and chosen you. If you go along the lines I have indicated above, there is no reason why you should stumble. And if you have lived the sort of life I've recommended, God will open wide to you the gates of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He ends this chapter in 2 Peter with you will do well to pay attention to these truths so you will live as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Father, we hear your love in the words today, but we also hear your rebuke. And we receive your correction as sons and daughters, knowing that you redirect us, that you change us because you love us. We want to not only hear and acknowledge, but we wanna walk away remembering what we've heard that this word would be made alive in us, Mm -hmm. that we would live an amended life, that our lives would be productive and fruitful for you, and that we would bring the kingdom to bear in our relationships with neighbors and with enemies, that we wouldn't limit what you can do by what man decides is reasonable, but we would be willing to engage in impractical obedience. Yes, that's right. Keep us alert, Father. Keep us in your presence. Keep us obedient by the power of Jesus.
0: Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. This season, this time, could be the answer of our prayers. Yes. <laughs> doesn't look like it, but we trust you to give us what we need. And this could be the chance for your people to love so intently that the whole world would know that we are your disciples. Help us to love, Lord. Sure, vote and talk and encourage and even debate sometimes. But help us make the main thing the plain thing that our love for you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our loving each other, our neighbor as ourself, those who persecute us, those who are our enemies, and certainly those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, let us love aggressively that the world may know we belong to you.
1: In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.